Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts still, and we're in chapter 23. We'll be starting at verse 25, and we'll talk about Paul's rescue. And this has been a very uh, interesting chapter here. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to gather here in your name to study your word, to proclaim the good news to one and all. And thank you uh, for this document that you've given us, this living Bible that has all these examples and guides, guidelines for exhibiting your powers to one and all. And thanks for Mark and his diligence and faithfulness in these studies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hello, Mark. Good evening. I'm not sure who all is with us, but uh, it's good to be back with you. I had the privilege in this last week to uh, go to a lectureship in Oklahoma where people of all of many different religious backgrounds and denominations uh, came together uh, to uh, you know to look at different topics, uh, united in the idea that. The story of the Bible is is God's intention from the very beginning to create the perfect bride for his son and the perfect dwelling place for himself on earth by uh, transforming the uh, physical covenant kingdom of Israel into a perfect spiritual kingdom. And uh, it it was quite an exciting time of... William Bell was there, who has been on some of these programs, and uh, Don Preston, who's been on one or two. So uh, it was a very uplifting and enlightening uh, time with very advanced uh, (laughs) topics, uh, mental overload there. We have been looking at the book of Acts in light of this overall view of the Bible, that the Bible is in fact a unity of thought from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, and we, we really can see in Acts, God's uh, working this eternal plan uh, within the lifetime of these great people who we read about here in the book of Acts, Luke and Paul, um, and so on. And we are learning a lot about the, uh, the details of God's plan by looking at the trials of Paul here. These trials can give us a a great insight into the nature and framework of Paul's 
eschatology or view of of last days things, judgment, resurrection, and, and so on. You can uh, look at what Paul was accused of here in these trials, how he responded to those accusations, and his positive statements of what he did in fact teach, and then compare that to what his detractors, the which we'll see were the Pharisees of old, and to what many religious teachers today, the Pharisees of new, uh, are teaching. And uh, we may have to give up some of our, our traditions, but we'll see an amazing simplicity and clarity of God's purpose that is uh, hard to find in, in most uh, places of religious teaching today. So in these trials... Uh, Paul hasn't, he's only had one there in front of the Sanhedrin, and then there's this plot hatched against him. And uh, the Roman commander in Jerusalem gets word from Paul's nephew of, that, that there's 40 zealots who are determined to kill him. And the commander determines immediately to send Paul by night with a heavy military escort uh, down out of Jerusalem and the hill country down to the coast to Caesarea, which is a thoroughly uh, Greco-Roman city as opposed to a Judean city. And that's where we left off last time. Now, the commander is named Claudius Lysias, and he has sent a letter uh, along with Paul, and that's what we're going to pick up reading here. Let's read verses 25 through 30, please. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Judeans and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him worthy of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Judeans lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. All right. The first line, verse 25, tells us that Luke may not have seen the this letter to be able to quote it and exact, he's apparently paraphrasing it since he says he wrote a letter in these terms. This is the general idea of, of the letter. The chief Roman official in the province, uh, Felix, is addressed as the most excellent governor. Common courtesy given to someone in a position of, of this um, significance. Felix actually had uh, come up from lower class than most governors uh, came from and had done quite well for himself. There's a slight change in the facts here when Lysias claims that he rescued Paul because he knew he was a Roman citizen. <laughs> As we already heard, he didn't find out until after he had rescued Paul and initially thought that Paul was a criminal and rabble-rouser, but he he kind of makes himself look a little bit better uh, in this letter, so I don't guess we can blame him too much for that. He's already kind of passing on his judgment here that 
this dispute uh, with Paul and the Judean leadership is not anything meriting death or imprisonment under Roman law, but appears to be related to the law of Moses, which is the same thing virtually as the Judean national law in whatever form the present government was executing it. And then he mentions the plot to kill this man who is a Roman citizen and worthy of the protection of the might of Rome. And so uh, that's the letter. Are there any, uh, any thoughts or comments? I would like to make a comment. It looks like the Roman government, in this case, really did their job. Uh, where, where do you find government like that? Well, Rome is very unique in all of human history, uh, particularly the Roman Republic, which is really on the way out at this time, because we're on the, uh, well, Julius Caesar really wasn't a, a Caesar uh, in the way we think of the others. Augustus is the first one who was proclaimed a god and, and given totalitarian powers. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the Roman Republic was truly remarkable in all of human history very efficient, uh, very good balance in protecting the rights of the citizens and with uh, protecting them and so on. So, yeah, and Luke uniformly presents in his writings Rome as a, as a positive force, at one that over and over acquits Christians of any a hint of civil disobedience or of being a threat to society or the Roman government. All right, well, let's go ahead then and read 31 through 35, please. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with them and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea, and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Seleucia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. All right, thank you. So, this uh, heavy military force of both infantry and cavalry uh, hurried Paul out of Jerusalem uh, in, as soon as it got uh, dark uh, and a little later on in the night. The foot soldiers turned around while the cavalry went on with him all the way to Caesarea, and of course Paul was mounted himself. So they successfully got him past these uh, Judean zealots who had sworn not to eat or drink uh, until they had killed Paul. And uh, did they say drink? I can't remember. But anyway, they're probably starting to get a little hungry by this time. And uh, they were going to get even hungrier if they didn't break their vow sooner rather than later. So the, the governor received this letter that we just read and... Uh, needed to determine where Paul came from because this would establish jurisdiction. And Paul's home city of Tarsus was uh, 
in a region that was administered as part of Syria administratively by the Roman government. And that, uh, let's see, I believe that made it totally legitimate for Felix to go ahead and try the case. As he does confirm here, he will give him a hearing rather than having to send him somewhere else if, if he did not have jurisdiction. And uh, the condition being that his, Paul's accusers needed to come before him. This was, of course, a requirement of Roman law, which was one of the most uh, just and fair legal systems in the history of mankind. You could not be accused of a crime without the opportunity to face your accuser. And uh, this is what is uh, referred to here in verse 35. So Paul, at this point being a Roman citizen, unconvicted of any crime, would have been treated as a, a guest, maybe not an honored guest, but he would have uh, been free uh, to wander around. I mean, he would be more or less like a house guest uh, with, with possibly a few restrictions, but it, nothing like being chained or in a dungeon or anything like that. Uh, you know, what an interesting tidbit about uh, Felix... Here, his full name was Marcus Antonius Felix. He was a servant by birth, but uh, his brother, who was named Pallas, had risen very high up in the Roman government. He was a freedman of Claudius' mother, Antonia. We, we spoke a little bit about the honored place in Roman society that freed slaves had. This was the synagogue of the freedmen where Stephen tried to debate the Judeans and, and uh, got into trouble. And, and Paul presumably had been part or associated with that same synagogue in Jerusalem. So Pallas was a, one of these freedmen, and uh, he had been in service to Claudius, the emperor Claudius's mother. And he was uh, freed and made the head of the imperial civil service so he had a very high position in the Roman government. And by virtue of his position, his brother Felix was made procurator of Judea in the year 52. And he may or may not have been there in a lower post uh, before that time. We don't know for sure. Uh, things were getting a little more uh, unstable during his term of office in Judea. He did use a certain ruthlessness in suppressing these uprisings of the Judean people, and that may have caused some other Judeans to uh, perhaps become more alienated from Rome, but we don't know that for sure. One historian, Tacitus, uh, sums up Felix thus, he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. But he had been very successful in marriage. He had three successive wives. I believe the first two died. Uh, the first was a granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. The third was Drusilla, the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa, who will actually uh, show up here in, in uh, a little bit later on in the narrative. Okay, so free trivia there about Felix. All right, any 
comments before we proceed. Yeah, what is your Roman source for uh, this kind of history, Mark? Uh, just as a matter of curiosity, where do you uh, where do you find the written history of, uh, of those? Of the I person? found uh, I found this tidbit in a, a commentary on Acts. That's a part of the series of the New International Commentary on the New Testament. This particular volume is written by F. F. Bruce, who uh, passed away in the mid 1980s, I believe. Uh, but he's a he's he was considered one of the foremost biblical scholars of this uh, past century. And, and presumably, he he would have relied on Roman historical sources then for the information. Is that well? Yeah, here's his sources right here. He he um, Josephus, of course, no, more Josephus, Tacitus's history, more Josephus, more Tacitus. Uh, and another Roman historian, Suetonius. So he does go to the primary sources, but I'm going only to a secondary source. Right. And I hope that doesn't offend anyone. That's just dandy. Okay. Just just a matter (laughs) of curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then, let's uh, read the first nine verses of chapter 24, please. Now, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named... Tertullus, they gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, Not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Judeans throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Judeans also ascended, maintaining that these things were so. All right, thank you. Now the high priest Ananias, we met him earlier. He was the one in Jerusalem that uh, ordered Paul to be struck in direct violation of the law before any witnesses had uh, proven anything against Paul. He comes down with some members of the Sanhedrin and an orator, and it'll be very interesting to see who these elders that came down with him actually are. They brought an orator uh, also, and uh, this flowery speech that begins here in two where there's all this flattery to Felix, that was considered pretty much normal for the day and age, that you would do that, that you would uh, open up with a very flowery statement praising the judge. We can presume that this is a a very uh, short summary of the actual speech, because orators normally didn't make 
uh, short speeches in those days. Then he, after the flattery, begins to lay out the charges against Paul, basically accusing him of fomenting uh, risings among the Jews against the empire, being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and one who had tried to violate the sanctity of the temple. This charge, you know, stirring up unrest in the empire, this would, of course, cause Felix to pay close attention because this was one of the things he was very concerned about in his uh, position, and the entire Roman government was worried about Judea as a boatload of trouble. Uh, And Luke uh, is again demonstrating in these accounts that the Christians were not uh, a genuine threat to peace, safety, etc. in the Roman world, as we'll see here in, uh, in Paul's response here. Of course, the facts are changed again where he implies that they had arrested Paul instead of a mob trying to rip him limb from limb in this presentation, the temple police had custody of him, and they were going to try him and were interrupted by the Roman military forces. Of course, and that's not the way that it actually happened. Now, these elders that came down with the high priest are called Judeans. They're in verse 9, and they corroborated what the orator has said this is the same usage of Judean that we found throughout the Gospel of John where sometimes the word can mean all people of Judean nationality other times it can mean those who live in Judea proper and the third meaning is the leadership of the Judean nation and it's in this third sense that the word is used here in verse 9. One thing I'll add, they had accused Paul of violating the temple back in Jerusalem, which was a crime that the Sanhedrin could prosecute themselves even to the point of issuing the death penalty, which is exactly how Stephen was convicted and executed, uh, although not properly, of course. But here they've reduced the charge to attempting to desecrate the temple, which is, of course, much more difficult to prove than actually desecrating the temple. So any claim they might have to being able to put Paul to death without Roman consent has kind of gone out the window here as they have reduced their charges from profaning the temple to just attempting to profane the temple. And, of course... How do you prove that somebody was about to do something that they didn't do? So they they have a difficult uh, case here shaping up. Okay, let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 21, please. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerful cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Judeans from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a multitude nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Judean, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Judeans a favor, left Paul bound. All right, thank you very much. Now, Paul begins his defense with the customary flattery, but his is very much more succinct and to the point than his accusers. Only 12 days have passed since he arrived in Jerusalem, and he specifically denies uh, the charges here in verses 12 and 13 that he was not disputing with anyone, he was not stirring up any crowds anywhere in the city, and he is absolutely confident that there is no proof possible to be presented against him of any of these charges made against him. He does begin in verse 14 to admit worshiping the God of Israel according to the way. We talked a lot about this back in Acts 9 when Saul was converted. He was trying to bind those of the way in Damascus that were in the Damascus synagogues. And this is alluding back to the prophecies in Isaiah that in the last days of Israel 
God would make a highway where all the scattered of Israel and all the other nations would be drawn in to uh, transformed Israel. And of course, John the Baptist had a had a critical role. He's almost described as a highway builder in some of those prophecies. So he admits to being part of this way, but he says it's based on believing all that is laid down by the law or written in the prophets. And so we see here that Paul's belief is not based on a new religion created from nothing uh, after Jesus died on the cross, but it is a confidence based on the Hebrew scriptures uh, that, that they had and all of these promises given to Israel by her own prophets. And, of course, this is what he's been using, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. This is what he's been using to convince people of all nations to become Christians. Key detail in verse 15 I have the same hope in God as they themselves accept that there is to be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, can we recall which faction of the Judeans the high priest Ananias was a member of? Pharisees. Uh, Probably not. He, in fact, I think we have good records that he was a Sadducee. I thought the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection and the Pharisees did. You're getting right to the crux of the point. Very good. So, if the high priest was a Sadducee and did not believe in the resurrection, what can we learn from Paul's defense here of verse 15 about the five elders who came down with the high priest to prosecute Paul. In other words, if Paul says that they themselves accept a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, and if we know that the high priest did not accept a resurrection of the righteous and unrighteous, what can we deduce about the five elders who accompanied him? They were Pharisees. Exactly. And this is a key point that is missed by most scholars. Recall just a few days before when Paul is in front of the Sanhedrin and he determined that they were mixed between Pharisees and Sadducees and he proclaimed the same thing that he says here. He said, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Do you recall what the Pharisees said there in council once Paul made that assertion? No. Did they say, let's stone him? No, they said, we find no fault in this man. What if an angel or a spirit has spoken to him? Does that sound vaguely familiar? Yes. So... Pharisees have come down, but a few days earlier, the Pharisees had declared that Paul was innocent. And remember the key essential of Roman law that has already been stated, that you have the right to face 
your accuser. Okay, is that, does that all make sense? So the men who have come to accuse Paul are the same men who a few days before had proclaimed Paul's innocence. And this will become a very important point as we try to compare Paul's understanding of resurrection with the understanding of the Pharisees. Okay. Okay? Uh, So he also repeats what he said in the Sanhedrin, that he had had a blameless conscience before God continuously. This is what caused the high priest to strike him uh, in the Sanhedrin. So he's done everything he's done in good conscience. Um, But he's preaching resurrection. Now, Paul is preaching resurrection everywhere he went. Can we remember when he was, uh, when he found himself in Athens waiting for his companions to catch up with him? He goes up to the center of town where all the philosophers like to exchange ideas. What was the basic gist of his lesson there on Mars Hill? Well, it was resurrection. He preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Pharisee concept of resurrection and the Christian concept of resurrection are not the same. The Christian concept of resurrection is around Jesus. And the Pharisees don't accept Jesus at all, never did. So their their concept of resurrection sounds kind of political, like Paul is playing a card on them. But uh, they know that when they talk about resurrection, they're not talking about Jesus. That's correct. Okay. But I, we, I hope we will find something even more um, powerful than that. We, I think we've already talked about it, the fact that when we read uh, Jewish writings that have survived to this present day, that go back almost to this time, at least hearsay evidence of what they believed in the first century. Uh, Remember that many of them, they they believed in a physical bodily resurrection, but uh, many of them, most of them, believed that it was limited to the land of Palestine, and that then everyone would be physically raised to physically live together in a renewed physical kingdom of Israel under a physical king. Sounds just like dispensationalism. Yes, it does. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, 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 it does. Uh, so, you know, Paul had been a Pharisee, but if we can, if we could go back to the time of his conversion uh, when Jesus appeared to him on his way up to Damascus, he sat for three days blind without eating, I believe he was in mourning because he realized that all the things that he expected about Israel's promised restoration were not accurate. That this Messiah was just a common carpenter. He wasn't a great king, and the kingdom was not a physical kingdom. And uh, I, I believe also, uh, and I don't 
expect anyone to agree with me, but I would ask that you consider it and perhaps study it. I believe that he may have also had to give up his idea of a physical resurrection and understand that the promised resurrection was spiritual, just like the king, the new high priest, the new kingdom, uh, and so on and so forth. And he speaks of this when he writes to the Corinthians in his first Corinthian letter. He's talking, he's trying to explain about the resurrection, and he talks about the old body is carnal, the new body is spiritual. Okay. So I believe that was something that he gave up and, and that he his views of the resurrection changed dramatically, not just regarding the person of Jesus, but also concerning Israel or believers, um, that he had to give up the old Pharisaical idea of all these physical bodies living in 1,000, you know, uh, well, they didn't have the millennium back in those days, but they they had this idea of the messianic kingdom where they would all live together. All the people that had ever been alive from the very beginning would all be, be alive in the messianic kingdom in physical Palestine. He had to give that up. So he he definitely had a different view of resurrection now than the Pharisees had. And apparently the Pharisees figured this out between his appearing to the Sanhedrin and now his appearance before Felix. So the Sadducees who were aggressively persecuting him in Jerusalem have apparently dropped out and the Pharisees have taken their place. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, until they get busy and gang up on him. Yeah, well they definitely are trying to do that. It's really remarkable how it's really remarkable how similar these thoughts are to the modern dispensational Christianity. They've adopted essentially um, the first century concept of the Pharisees. Uh, many of them, yes, they sure have. It is amazing. Like I said, you were ahead of your time when you started, you know, Pharisee Watch. Um, anyway, Paul, in verse 18, Paul states that he was purified in the temple, not causing any disturbance when these Judeans from Asia created this uproar. And look what he says about them there in verse 19. They should have been here in your presence to state any charge that they might have to bring against me. Okay. And then look at verse 20. He's really grinding it home here. Or let these men, now we've just figured out who these men are, let these men themselves say what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees, what crime had they found in Paul when he stood before the Sanhedrin? They found none at all. None, no, no crime at all. But then verse 21, apart from this one declaration which I made, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So the high priest who is there could certainly have taken issue with this. But that would have divided the coalition <laughs> that has a smashed against Paul, you see, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So uh, it's not likely that they're going to do that. So Paul really has, has them 
trapped here. Under Roman law, they have no case against him. He's being held for a couple of years here. I mean, I guess justice is slow. Or well, may, may I may I make a suggestion? Uh, I I heard something said about uh, Felix when he was about to retire. Said that he wanted to do a favor for the Judeans. The, I guess the Pharisees or Sadducees are both. So he left Paul locked up upon his retirement. And then prior to that, I heard uh, something about Felix asking Paul for money. Uh, did, the, did I hear that wrong? That Felix was, uh, was suggesting that Paul ought to make a contribution to him. Uh, and instead, uh, Paul had a conversation with him. Is it possible that the Pharisees and the Sadducees found a way to use their purse? Uh, yes, but you were, you were looking ahead here to the reason that uh, Felix kept Paul in, in bounds. He was, he was actually hoping to get money out of him. And, the, and, it, and probably he got it out of the Pharisees because the way they acted then isn't much different than the way they act today. Well, that's the a power good point. of the purse. Yep, yep, maybe so. He may have accepted a bribe to keep him in prison, and then once he left office, his hope of getting a bribe himself was gone. But he left Paul in custody as a as a favor the to the Judeans, and yeah, and they may have given him a bribe or something. So, <laughs> so we don't know. Need to wrap up for this uh, session, but just by review. Paul's been accused of teaching against the law of Moses, against Moses himself, against Jerusalem, against the temple, against the people of Judea. But Paul, in response to all these charges, just keeps coming back, I am on trial for my teaching of the resurrection. And so we need to explore this connection between the charges against Paul and his response to try to see how they might, in fact, be related, at, at least in Paul's mind. Uh, and we'll continue to do that as we go through these uh, trials. Sometimes he uh, calls it the hope of Israel instead of resurrection. And we can see from, from the way he does use that term that he regards hope of Israel as a synonym or as synonymous with resurrection, and and again this uh, and William Bell mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, we have this individualistic concept in the churches in America that the gospel is all about me. You know, God did this for me. He he's, his whole plan was to save me, but Paul is not preaching it that way. Paul is preaching that God did it to save Israel. His whole purpose was to save and transform and recreate Israel from a harlot bride into a perfect bride. And it's a collective idea. Paul's idea of the resurrection is a collective idea of resurrection, not the individual idea of resurrection that has been so popular in Western culture you know, for hundreds of years. I mean, our the net benefit to each of us as individual Christians is is the same, but 
but the the path to get there is quite different and uh you know god's purpose it it wasn't just about us it was about him god's purpose was to create the perfect bride for his son and the perfect dwelling place for himself on earth this is how the bible begins in genesis this is how the bible ends at the end of revelation so i think we can hopefully challenge what we've been taught on some of these ideas as we continue to go through paul's trials here we'll try to pick up next time with uh at verse 22 roughly and we may have to come back to a few of these points in paul's defense here as we tie all this together later so thank you very much for your uh patience as as we get through these all right well thanks mark another good lesson Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.